I'm not going to lay the foundation we already laid yesterday. This is Lordship versus Free Grace Part 2. And I think what's helpful in this conversation is to let you know this is these are not necessarily uh, the two competing views, uh, the two only views that are possible when it comes to salvation. Um, these are just two views that often get put at odds and often get the most airtime. And I'll, I'll, I already said yesterday, both have extreme views, both have good things and wrong things I believe about them. And I'm just trying to find middle ground. That's all. I'm not trying to defend either. I'm not trying to attack either. In fact, there, I, there's a lot that I resonate with when it comes to both camps. Um, so if you have not already watched episode one, go watch that. I explain why I'm doing this, what this is, what lordship is, what free grace is. Today we're talking about repentance. And it, if you're like, I know what repentance is, turning from sin, you're going to be surprised, actually. Um, and so I encourage you to stick around and don't just assume that what you've been told about repentance is actually correct. Because... If you think about it, repentance is a key factor when it comes to salvation, is it not? And so when it comes to repentance, the idea of repenting, before I get into the Greek and Hebrew and how it's used and all the things attached to it, know this, there's a way both camps explain repentance. Lordship salvation will say this about repentance, that repentance from the Lordship salvation perspective, it is turning away from sin. It is forsaking your old life and turning to God in faith with confession and a sorrow over your sin with the intent to change. They may not be synonymous with faith, right? Faith and um, in the mind of the Lordship salvation is, and again, I'm not making generalizations and just shoving everyone into one camp, but most of the people who do hold to Lordship and Reformed theology and, and often Calvinism too, they would say, yeah, repentance and faith aren't synonymous, but they're at least two sides of the same coin. And they would say repentance involves an inward resolve to live different, no longer in sin. Now, the free grace perspective, based on all my research and studying, says this. Well, repentance is not turning from your sins uh, or changing your behavior or lifestyle or even having the intent to live different. It's simply to change one's mind about Jesus as the only one who makes us righteous before a holy God. And they would say, uh, at least most free gracers I've come across would say, yeah, repentance and faith are synonymous. If at least two sides of the same coin, but most of them will say it's synonymous, that they are synonymous ideas, okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 tells us this. Let me pull over my scriptures and I encourage you to let me know if this is not coming through. Like if I'm, if I'm like talking about the scriptures and you're like, I don't see it, let me know in the chat. On my end, it seems to be scrolling just fine. Hebrews 6 verse 1, therefore, the author of Hebrews calling his audience to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance, right, from dead works. So repentance, when it comes to salvation and our faith, it's a foundational concept. It's a foundational teaching. Specifically, what's in mind here is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Those two ideas go together. If they're not indeed the same thing, they're at least two sides of the same coin. Faith is foundational. Repentance is foundational. And again, if they're not two sides of the same coin, sometimes someone will say they're synonymous. I'll let you know where I stand at the end of this. But notice in Hebrews 6, it does not say repent from sin. It says, repent from dead works, which makes me think about Isaiah. All our, all our good deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. 
all of the, the good things I think I can do, all my moral efforts, all my good works amount to nothing when it comes to trying to earn my spot in heaven. I can't. I can't measure up. I don't meet the righteous standard of God. I can't be perfect. No one can. And so no amount of good earns me anything in the sight of God. I can't become righteous on my own. So part of this foundational concept of repentance, firstly, it involves repenting from dead works, which is to say, I can't do anything. My works that I used to trust in, my own moral efforts, my own morality, my, my own goodness centered around me intrinsically, I'm, I'm having nothing to do with that. I look to Jesus alone for righteousness. You're going to see this idea unpacked a little bit more. So it's a foundational idea specifically from dead works. What you need to know is I've heard this quite a bit from the free grace side of things. Uh, they'll say this, just so you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm being a teacher of the free grace for, for, for a minute, okay? They'll say, hey, the phrase repent from your sins, you won't find it in scripture not even once. Not even once. And you can go and look. And I would say, initially I was bothered by it because I've been trained to think a little differently. I looked, okay, and before you throw all the things you think you found, hold, hold those, okay? But I, I will say initially, I absolutely agree. In scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you will not see the exact terminology and this exact sentence, repent from your sins. What you will see, and I'm gonna get to it, is something that I think is actually uh, even more clear. So, what we can agree on, whether you're free grace or lordship salvation, is this. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They can't be separated. Faith assumes repentance. Both are foundational to our salvation. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. What you also should know, and we're going to start moving through this, repentance unto salvation at least. When we're talking about repentance as it relates to being righteous and saved right, and redeemed, repentance is a one-time event. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, uh, Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. To what? To repentance. Same idea is seen in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. And if it's a one-time event, then I'm going to show you in Scripture, as I've shown you in previous episodes on eternal security, that the one-time moment of faith, repentance, actually gives, grants us, by the grace of God, forgiveness from all sin, past, present, future. It's a once-for-all covering because Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all atonement. Luke 15, 7, uh, Jesus says, Look, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Same thing you'll see in Luke 10, or Luke uh, 15, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Seems to be a one-time action. That doesn't mean there's no room in the life of the believer to confess sin and change mind about sin that is going on in their life. But at least repentance unto salvation and righteousness. It's a one-time event. Luke 24 verse 47. Um, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, this is Jesus commissioning the 11 apostles. 
So he says, repentance should be proclaimed. For what purpose? What purpose does repentance play in the salvation kind of picture? Well, it's for the forgiveness of sins. Not just present sins, not just sins I'm aware of, not just sins I'm conscious of, not just sins I'm really sorry for, but sin in general. And you go, that's a bit of a stretch. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 through 18, makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is so sufficient and he's so capable of atoning for our sin with his perfect divine nature and perfect, righteous, blameless self that he can grant us eternal forgiveness from all evil, from all darkness and sin. It says, by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Do you see it? You are sanctified, set apart unto God as a child of God, redeemed, righteous, forgiven, at the moment of faith, once for all time. Why is that possible? Because you're going to see Jesus' sacrifice has that exact kind of language attached to it. Every priest, referring to human priests uh, who were not Jesus, right? these priests who were limited and finite and sinful, they stand daily at their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. It's an every year thing. The Day of Atonement was a reminder of sin. It was a reminder of sin for the Jewish people that you rely on God for forgiveness. And you guys are a sinful people and he dwells among you. Look how gracious he is. And it's also a, a yearly ritual reset, you might say, from the ritual impurity they've accrued. So when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, do you see the language that he's using intentionally? Jesus' sacrifice, his offering is for all time. Not for most time, not for some time, for all time. All of human history. That's why the, pre, the saints that come before Jesus can have their sins atoned for because Jesus being eternal uh, reaches all across human history being present and existent at every point in human history where sin is committed. So Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down because he's finished. His high priestly work is different than the other high priests that come before him. They're all standing. They're all serving. They die in their service and someone else picks up the mantle. Jesus is done. He sits down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By one single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I don't think I have to further my point anymore, but if you go down to verse 17, God does promise with a new covenant that is initiated through the blood of Jesus. He says, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Doesn't say past sin, doesn't say sins they're aware of or conscious of, doesn't say the sins they're really sorry for or just their present. It says their sins in general. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Okay, so repentance is a one-time event that grants you eternal and perfect, complete, lifelong forgiveness that even spans beyond the life you have in this earth. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says the same thing. The once for all language. He secures an eternal redemption. He purifies our conscience from the dead works we were called to repent of in Hebrews 6. Repenting from dead works, Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works, which I will say 
does not just speak to the self-righteous good deeds we try and do to earn our spot in heaven, but it also speaks to if it's a purifying of our conscience from something to actually effectively serve God, that does include sin. My conscience is free from the shame and condemnation and unhealthy guilt that comes from sin and my own self-righteous deeds that don't measure up to God's standard. Because whether you're trying to be good enough apart from Jesus or you're just living in sin, both are plagues on your conscience and we need to be cleansed from that. Hebrews 9, 23 through 26 says the same thing, uh, that he appeared once for all to put away sin by his single sacrifice. Romans 4, 5, 3, I mean, I can go on. Repentance unto salvation is a one-time event by which God grants you eternal forgiveness and uh, a secure position in his son for all eternity. It's beautiful. So that's the premise I'm working with when we speak of repentance as it relates to salvation, okay? There is a kind of repentance. We need to define terms here, okay? So now we get to define the terminology. We know that whatever repentance is, it's foundational. It relates to salvation and righteousness. It actually is a one-time event, once for all, all my sins covered, okay? Now, what I want to show you is uh, something I, I knew, but I never connected the dots until I heard some free grace teachers make this connection. They talk about how, did you know that God repents? He repents. Not from sin, not from evil, not from bad decisions, but you're going to see what the Hebrew word actually means for repent as it relates to God. And a lot of what we see in the Old Testament Okay, so the Hebrew word for repent is nakam. Silver Mouse is going to correct me, as is his job. <laughs> and the word means to be sorry, to pity, to literally to breathe strongly. In other words, the Hebrew word for that is translated in our English language as repent, the Hebrew word nakam, that notes a strong emotional response, most often of sorrow or regret. Okay. That's different than the Greek word that gets translated in our English language as repent. In the Greek, what we see as repent in the New Testament is actually metanoia, which means to change one's mind. It's a conscious decision, right? It's a free will decision that I intentionally make. Metanoia, to change my mind. So even though the Hebrew word and the Greek word that get translated repent, even though they're they are the same word in English, they're not carrying the same idea in the original language. That's why this, this topic is kind of tough to navigate. So even though they're same in the English and they get translated as repent in our language, they seem to emphasize something different, uh, especially in different contexts. But at its core, mostly uh, the Greek word metanoia and the Hebrew word nakam, it's going to carry at its core the same heartbeat. You're going to see that in a minute, okay? So in the Greek, again, repent means to change one's mind. And actually, it doesn't always carry a moral element to it. Meaning, when I, if you just use the language in the Greek, when I metanoia, I, that's not always a morally bad or morally good thing. Sometimes it's disconnected from morality entirely. It's neutral. Therefore, it doesn't guarantee any salvation just to change one's mind. I can metanoia, change my mind about a show I watched and go, you know what? I like that show. I can change my mind about someone that I want to hang out with. You know what? I do want to hang There's no moral element attached to that. But in the Hebrew, okay, at least in the Hebrew, um, it's not always involving sin or playing some sort of issue in, as it relates to morality. Because again, the same word nakam is going to be 
which is translated repent, it's used of God. Uh, he experiences pity, regret, or sorrow um, over things that are transpiring in his creation. Genesis, I'm just going to give you a list of scriptures to look at, okay? Because this, uh, nothing I say further from here hangs on this. This is just something to note. And you can test me on it. I'm going to give you lots of scriptures. Genesis 6, verse 6 through 7. Exodus 32, 12 through 14. Deuteronomy 32, 36. Now, depending on the translation you're reading, sometimes it will get translated to be something different. And you're like, it doesn't say repent, you lied. But look at the Hebrew word being used there. It's an account to experience pity, regret, or sorrow, um, which you might say insinuates a change of mind, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, 36, Judges 2, 18, 1 Samuel 15, 11, 1 Samuel 15, 35. You can go back and slow this part down to list them out. 2 Samuel 24, 16, 1 Chronicles 21, 15, Psalms 90, verse 13, Psalm 106, 45, Psalm 135, 14, Jeremiah 18, 8, Jeremiah 26, 3, 13, 19, Jeremiah 42, 10. The list goes on and on. Amos Jonah 3, 9 through 10, Joel 2, 13 through 14. And then you got to reconcile that with certain passages that say God is not like man, that he should change his mind. And you might say in some capacity, okay, um, in some capacity, like God is not necessarily changing his mind. Because in the New Testament, you don't see this situation happen. God doesn't necessarily have this same nakam that we see in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. We don't see that happen in the, in the New Testament. God isn't experiencing that uh, regret, sorrow, experiencing pity, or showing some kind of remorse in the New Testament over something that's happening or transpiring. So it's different. For some reason, at least in the Old Testament, we see it happen quite frequently. And it doesn't necessarily mean a change of mind. Okay? The same word actually in the Hebrew, can refer to being comforted or comforting one another. Um, and so that's worth noting because someone's going to say that uh, repentance in the Hebrew always means to turn from sin. Well, God is not turning from sin. He has no evil to repent of or to feel sorrow over. But he does feel sorrow and pity and breathe strongly an emotional response uh, towards his creation and what's transpiring in the world he created for our good. Okay? So, with that on the table, I just wanted to be honest and upfront uh, so that when we move forward, we're considering these things. I'm not necessarily telling you how to think, I'm just giving you the biblical data. That's, that's all I'm trying to do. I know where I stand, and I don't necessarily care that you stand where I stand theologically. I just hope you would evaluate the same data and come to a logical, reasonable, biblical conclusion. So repentance, I want you to see uh, always, where well, we're going to look at the Hebrew word for nakam, uh, for repent, which is nakam, and we're going to look at the Greek word metanoia, uh, which gets translated repent. So you have to note, when you're reading your Bible, you can't shove your cultural idea of repentance into the word repent when you see it. God repented? He said sorry for his sin? No. Therefore, that word repent, at least what gets translated in our English language as repent, does not always carry a moral element to it. There's another word involved within repentance that is very often, very, very, after scouring the scriptures, you need to know the studies I've done. Like I spent hours <laughs> studying and looking through every occurrence of the word repent, repenting, repented, repentance, 
um, turning, turning away, forsaking, returning, all these different elements, that these words that play uh, a role in our idea of what repentance looks like. I've, I've looked at all of it in the context. So when you see the word repentance, usually in the English language, very often attached to the Hebrew word nakam, specifically in the Old Testament, okay, you're going to see the word that gets translated for turn back or return. In the Hebrew, it's the word shub. Yes, shub. Like a pair of shoes, but with a B on it. Shub. So that word literally means to turn back or to return. And this idea is so often attached to the word nakam, repenting, uh, when it relates to people, um, that you, you almost can't disconnect them. I'm going to show you what I mean. So this is the idea that is most often at the core of a person repenting. Is that, and I think both camps, Lordship and Free Grace, both agree that when we use the word repent in the Hebrew or the Greek, it is to turn, for the human at least, it is to turn back to God or to turn towards God for righteousness, for salvation, for forgiveness in faith. Even if you, would, as a free grace individual, would say, repentance is not a meritorious work we do where we turn away from sin, you still agree with me that repentance is turning to God in faith. The same idea of turning or returning also, the word shub in Hebrew, is so often going to be attached to this idea of repenting. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 4 is one of the first times I came across this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 4. I know for some people this is boring, but if you have a wrong theology of repentance, just imagine the kind of life that results from that. Just imagine how many mental, emotional issues of distraught and depression and, and, and spiritual insecurity result from not understanding what repentance really looks like for me. Did I really repent? How do I know I really did it? Did I do it enough? And it plagues people's conscience. It robs them of what they have in Christ and to enjoying it at least. It robs them from enjoying what they have in Jesus. Or it keeps people from really knowing that they've you know come to know him and all this stuff. There's, an, there's a lot of issues that come from simply wrongly defining repentance. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 4, I might need to turn on the AC in here. It is hot. <sighs> I could turn on my fan. I don't think it'd be too loud. Give me one second. Yeah. Okay, I turned on my fan. If the noise is like obstructing me coming through, um, then please let me know. Okay. Um, I'm reading the comments. Sorry. Amen. Brother, the screen is black. Um, is it, is it black? You guys can't see anything on the screen? I don't know if he's talking to me, but I want to make sure. Everything good? Can you guys see me and see the scriptures? It's all that matters. I don't really care if you see me. I'd rather block me out, to be honest. I hate being on camera. Coming through fine. Okay, sweet. Um, good, 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 good. Deuteronomy 30. Listen very closely. I have 
I was gonna exaggerate and say thousands of scriptures. I have so many scriptures to get through, it's, it's insane. It's at, but it's necessary, man. Because I'm not trying to build any one, any theology off of one verse or any couple of isolated instances. It, I could have gone longer, but I'm choosing not to. Deuteronomy 30, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, okay? This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. I think it's through Moses which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So this is actually Moses speaking on behalf of God, I believe. And you return to the Lord your God. Okay? Moses is already anticipating. He knows for certain, y'all gonna abandon God, forsake the covenant, breach of faith. That's gonna happen. When you are displaced and exiled to the surrounding nations, he doesn't know which ones, I don't think, where the God drives you, which is to re essentially release the curse upon them for their sin temporarily and physically in this, in this life. When God does that and he uses Babylon or he uses Assyria and he drives you out of the land. And when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So God promises, if you turn, return to the Lord your God. Now you might say that necessitates obedience to his voice in all he commands. I, I will try my best to address this a little later, okay? But for now, I at least wanna say that for the people of Israel to you might say be restored back to the land, at least in their context, it requires them to return to God with all their heart. Now you might say the outward, uh, the way they physically do that is to come back and choose to obey his voice. I would say that might be one of the things that play into it, but it's not synonymous with returning to God entirely. So this is going to be the best and clearest picture moving forward of what it means to turn to God in faith. But the word is not always used of one turning specifically to God. When I, when I said the word shub in Hebrew means to turn back or return, that word can actually be used, and most often when I found it, that word occurred when someone was returning to something or returning to a piece of land or a location they came from or when someone returns to the dust from whence they came. So the idea of shub in the Hebrew doesn't always carry a spiritual element to it. And it's not always turning to God, but in relationship with specifically the people of Israel, and you'll see Nineveh, right? As it relates to God being in the picture, they're turning to him, okay? In the context of physical salvation and repentance in the Old Testament, it is always turning to God as the object of faith, trusting in him, and admission of sin is kind of implied within that. And we see the same thing in the New Testament with the Greek word, I'm going to try my best to pronounce this. The Greek word is epistrepho. Epistrepho. Sounds like some kind of disease. The Greek word epistrepho. Epistrepho. Which means I turn back towards. Or literally to turn back. It can also involve coming to one's own senses. I come to myself. Like the prodigal son. He comes to his senses. He comes to himself and realizes... I need to return back to my father. That's the idea in the Greek. 
And so what we see in the Hebrew of shub turning or returning, okay, at least in the Greek carries the same idea, but the Greek word for that same idea is epistrepho, okay? So now I wanna just jump to the New Testament real quick and then we'll come back to the old, I promise. But I wanna show you that the idea of repenting involves turning to God, New Testament. Now, some people who are hyper-dispensationalist will get around this by pulling the, it's like a trump card they, they can pull whenever they want. Acts is transitional. And it's like, that's their way to get around any kind of practical application or universal wisdom found in Acts. I think there are times where that card applies. And you go, yeah, Acts is a transitional book. But I'm not dispensationalist, so I don't, I've heard the teachings and I just can't, I can't see that, man. Nothing against people who do. I personally, I, maybe I'm not there, but I've studied and looked and I go, I highly disagree. Like, I don't know how you can see that, but Acts 3, um, 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, guess what? He's fulfilled. This is Peter preaching. This is what he says. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now you might say, well, repenting and turning back are two different ideas. At least as it relates to salvation in this context, you might say they're different ideas being described, but I would say they're one and the same thing because the sins being blotted out here depend on the condition of repenting and turning back. So I would at least say repenting is to turn back to God so that my sins can be blotted out. That's, that's at least something we can fairly agree on is when I repent as it relates to salvation, I'm turning back to God. The reason I'm spending quite a bit of time on this is because some people aren't convinced of this. Like really, I've come across people and teachers who think repenting, if you, if you say turn back to God, they somehow, a red flag goes off in their mind and they go meritorious work, meritorious work, legalism, legalism, works-based. And I'm trying to get you to understand it's, it's not a works-based legalistic thing. It's not even a meritorious act you do. It's literally what repenting is to turn back. When you change your mind, you're changing your mind about God and his gospel and his son and saying, you make me righteous. So you're turning to him for your sins to be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And he'll go on and on and talk about the restoration and what Moses says about the prophet who will be, you know, who will rise up later in Acts 15, 19. And there's that Greek word, epistrepho. Acts 15, 19. When they're figuring out, what do we do with the Gentiles? How Jewish do they have to be, right? This is what they conclude. I think James is talking here, or Peter. Um, one of the apostles says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Turn to God. Like get saved, become a child, believe. You might even say, and, and I agree with the premise that, like I'm of the belief at least so far, that repentance and faith are even synonymous because to believe is to change my mind and be convinced of the facts, right? I'm believing and trusting in the Son. To turn to God is, is foundational and assumed within believing and repenting. So I would say believing is repenting. Repenting is believing. 
Now he's talking about the Gentiles who turn to God. What should we do with those who come into the kingdom, who come into the faith? He describes it though as turning to God. I want you to see that. Um, after their granted repentance, we see that. And the Calvinistic theology will twist that and say, look, God is giving them repentance, but not other people. It's like, well, actually, he's just saying, here's the opportunity to turn to me and have salvation, just like the Jewish people. So, biblical repentance, both in the Old and New Testament, and I'm not done, just see, so I'm just stating where we are currently. Biblical repentance involves turning to God, okay? Now, does that logically mean that therefore biblical repentance involves turning from something? Now you might say, and the free grace individual will agree with this, to turn to God is to turn away from self-righteousness and dead works, which is to say, you're admitting I can't meet the standard of God. I don't trust in my works and my labor and my righteousness. I'm turning to God and trusting in his. You, I don't know how a free grace individual would get around that um, because that's exactly what's being implied in faith. As you're saying, make me righteous, I look to you. Does that mean you're turning from sin though? Because many people I've come across, and we don't need to address lordship because I just don't, I don't think this helped. There's even, it's even worth addressing. The free grace individual though is like, yeah, turning from sin, not repentance. That's not what repentance means because then you're saying you have to do something besides believing and you're adding works to faith. I'm going to put a pin there and we'll jump back to this when it's time. But I at least want to whet your appetite and let you think through is repenting, if it is at least turning to God in faith, does that assume you're turning from sin? Hebrews 6 will tell us it's turning from or changing my mind about the dead works I once trusted in. But does that include sin? Okay. Luke 1.16. What's interesting about John the Baptist's uh, baptism of repentance is that Zechariah is told by the angel that John the Baptist's ministry of repentance, water baptism, preparing people for the Messiah, revealing the Messiah, it's summed up right here. Look at how John the Baptist's ministry is summed up. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Okay? He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Go before who? The Messiah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's whole ministry is one of preparation. Make way, make level ground, prepare the, the path, make a straight path for him. And then what you see in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 is that people are coming, confessing their sins, being baptized in the Jordan by John and that's what it looks like for them to have their hearts turned. And you might say, well, dispensationally, well, hold on. They're being ready for the revealing of the Messiah among his people. They're being made ready like a bride being prepared. That's the idea. So John's job is to turn the heart, not like on his own, but the role he plays in preparing people for Jesus is to turn their hearts to God. 
and they do that. We see the expression of that in them getting baptized and confessing sins and going, what do we do? So they're confessing sin and turning to God, at least in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. Um, that might not be turning, ex like, that's not explicitly turning from sin and dispensationally, okay, hold on. I'm not even trying to develop anything around that. I'm just trying to let you know that John's ministry is indeed turning people to God. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I turned to God for righteousness. That's not a meritorious act. All you're simply saying is, hey, I believed. I made a conscious decision to change my mind. I agreed with the facts. I acknowledged them and I trusted in the Messiah. And you go, why are you making that such a complicated description? Because the concept of faith, if it took three hours and that wasn't even sufficient, if it took three hours last episode to explain, we probably shouldn't oversimplify something. Like it is basic in terms of believe. We're like, yes, but there's so much that goes into that. So what I want to show you now, both in the new and the old Testament is that turning to God, which we've already talked about turning to God is a necessary component of repentance, if not the same thing. So here are some synonymous terms for you to like understand. Believing is repenting is turning to God. Those are three ways to say the same thing. We're not saying, we're not describing different points along the process of salvation and sanctification. We're saying those are just three ways of explaining what happens when I choose to trust in Christ. You could say, I'm turning to him. I'm believing in him. I'm metanoia, repenting, turning from dead works. Okay. What you're going to see now, and I think this is, this is at least worth noting. Repenting, turning to God specifically, always has, well, I won't say always because that's a definitive statement I can't fully stand by. I will say like 90% of the time, turning to God has a physical action involved. And very often, both in the Old and New Testament, the turning to God is actually turning away from something. Now you might say, yes, self-righteous works my own self-righteousness and my dead works. Sweet. So we can agree that there is a turning from something and you'll go, but not sin. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Do you see how precise we need to be with our terminology and our language? Otherwise the problem with people on both sides, you need to understand this as a teacher. This is why it's so frustrating. People are sitting in the chat waiting for me to make a mistake. They're not listening. This might be you. You're not listening. Um, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're not seeking to understand. You're not open-minded. You're so close-minded that you're just waiting for me to make a mistake. You're waiting for me to say something you can rebuttal. You're sitting in the bushes lurking like a creepy little raccoon, just waiting for something to go wrong so you can pounce on it and undermine what's happening here. Stop it. Stop being children. Turning to God very, very often has a physical dimension to it. Acts 26, verse 16 through 20. Now this is Saul's account as he's on trial, his account of when he encountered the Lord Jesus. Who are you, Lord? It's me. You're persecuting me. Oh. So 
Let's start in verse 16, just so you have context. The Lord Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise, Saul, his Hebrew name, and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Why? Well, I'm here to appoint you as a servant and a witness. I love that. Like, you need to understand, we as believers, we're appointed to be servants. It's an honor to serve. Paul, we often look at servanthood, and this is like a sidebar, and service as this begrudging thing. And we want people to know just how low I'm going to serve you. And we want people to know how much of a big deal it is for me to serve. As if I'm entitled to not serve. As if, I, you know what, serving is not something I'm, that's beneath me. In the mind of the apostle, to be a servant of God is something you're appointed to. It's actually high above, it's higher than our current station outside of Christ. Meaning, the unbeliever looking on at servants of God, the unbeliever is looking at something that he's not worthy to be, and yet God makes us that. Servants. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me, and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Now watch. To whom I'm sending you. Okay. Specifically, Paul's ministry is not only, but it is mainly to the Gentiles. Because the Jews just shut the guy down, shut him out. They're like, forget you. He's like, okay, I'll go to the Gentiles. So Jesus says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. Why? To open their eyes, which is spiritual sight like Paul received. Spiritual sight, who Christ is, believe, faith, that. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light. Well, that's not saying sin. They might turn from the power of Satan to God. Well, that's not, a, that's not prior to salvation. That's once you're saved and you're being sanctified. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins, which we've already noted. You don't progressively over your life become more forgiven or receive more forgiveness of sins. When I confess my sin right now to God that I'm aware of, he doesn't make me more forgiven than I already was. He's not forgiving me of something new that he didn't cover when I first got saved. We already established when you repent and believe all sin, past, present, future, from the beginning to the end of your life, covered. So what Paul is describing, what Jesus is describing to Paul, is what happens prior to being forgiven. And what's that? Well, their spiritual eyes are opened. They turn from darkness. They turn from the power of Satan to God. If you want to describe the conversion experience, there you go. <laughs> I'm not inserting my, I didn't say anything about works. I didn't say anything about sin. Like you read between the lines. Paul, why, Jesus, why are you sending me? Paul, buddy, Gentiles, they need their eyes open so they can turn from dark. In other words, spiritual sight is required to even turn from the darkness they're held captive to. Why would he use that terminology? I'm not even implying that darkness is inherently sin. You can say darkness could be blindness. Darkness could be unbelief. Darkness could be... Darkness most often is related and has a spiritual element of those things. So turning from darkness to light, 
to light. Notice that. Remember how we talked about repenting? Acts is a transitional book. I'm telling you, people are going to find their way around this no matter what. But I'm just trying to show you why Jesus commissions Paul. Turning people from darkness, from the power of Satan, they require spiritual insight that comes through the gospel to turn to light, which is to God. And by doing to turn to God from darkness and power of Satan is to receive forgiveness of sins. Now you can read into the text, well, the darkness or the power of Satan is dead works. It's not, he's not clarifying what's being said, but you think about what is most often described as darkness or as the power of Satan that needs to be turned from so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's describing the faith conversion experience. Do you see it? Now, there are going to be people who work really hard to get around this because they think it's a meritorious work by which I'm adding to my faith when I say, turn from darkness, from the power of Satan to God. They go, so you're telling me I need to do two things to be saved? No, I'm describing to you what faith and conversion is. If we agree turning to God is faith, and especially because this comes prior to forgiveness and being sanctified, he's describing what faith looks like, which is to turn to God, which assumes you're turning from darkness, power of Satan, requires spiritual insight. Wow, you're reading a lot into the text, bro. <laughs> oh man, you guys are funny. Acts 28, this is hilarious. You have no idea. Um, I won't get to that yet. Acts 28. This is uh, Paul, at least in the end of his ministry that we see recorded in Acts. There's some disagreement between him and the Jews he's ministering to. And he right just goes for it, man. Just turns into a rhinoceros and trucks these fools over. And he says, the, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll, you'll see, but never perceive. This people's heart, he's telling the people right in front of him, this prophecy is about you. This people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes, they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Understanding spiritual insight that comes from the gospel is required in order to effectively turn to God. Now, there's nothing about turning from sin here. I just want you to see, let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So the understanding with the heart or the spiritual insight or the spiritual reception of the ears comes prior to the turning, right? And the being healed by God. Describing mainly, I would say, I don't know how you'd get around this. That's the salvation experience, yeah? Now let's go to Old Testament. Enough with the Greek word uh, epistrepho. Let's go full Hebrew for silver mouse and jump to the shub. Remember in Hebrew? Everyone say shub. Shub. Good job, guys. I know you said it. Helps me not get insecure to believe you said it. Isaiah 19. 
The word shu, which means to turn, to return, which is implied within the idea of what? Changing one's mind, repentance. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of, in the midst of Egypt. He's describing what's coming for Egypt. It's a beautiful spiritual reality for them in the future. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord. I want, to, I want you to see what it looks like for Egypt to return to the Lord here in verse 22. Everything I've highlighted in pink is describing the returning or the turning, okay? This isn't a list of to-dos in order to add to your faith to make sure you're really, this is just what happens for Egypt to return to the Lord. That's all I'm saying. When they cry because of the oppressors that are the result of their own sinfulness, it seems like, he'll send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. The Lord will make himself known. I love that. The revealing heart of God. God's heart is for you to know him, not know about him. Some of y'all knee deep in theology and terminology and Greek and Hebrew that you've lost sight of the object of your joy and you've made it all about the studies. And there's a place for being a scholar and a student and studying and going to seminary. There's a place for that. But when it replaces the enjoyment of God's presence in my life and intimacy and fellowship and, and just simply loving being loved by him, there's a problem. God wants to make himself known to you. Sometimes it requires us to put all our commentaries down and just sit. And just sit. And the Egyptians will know the Lord because God makes himself known. Which sounds like what comes through the gospel is spiritual knowledge, insight, understanding that results in a knowledge of who? The Lord. In that day, and they will worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. I'm not saying this is what we need to do to repent. Let me clearly say that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is what Egypt and the people of Egypt do when they cry and return. Here's how they do that practically. There's a physical dimension to it. That's what I'm trying to show you. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. The Lord will strike Egypt striking and healing. So the strike comes to turn them to him, which is what happens in our lives, guys. There's that chastening, that discipline, that loving correction of God to turn us back to him where we go, that's right, you're everything. Sorry, I forgot. And they'll return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Now, the believer doing that is different than what's happening here. This sounds like Egyptians are converting becoming believers, trusting in God, the God of Israel, okay? In Isaiah 55, one through seven, you're gonna see some physical actions. Remember, I'm just trying to show you that the aspect of turning to God very often, like so, so often I ran out of space to note down the instances, but so often has a physical action to take. Isaiah 55, one through seven, um, and, and, and note, let me, let me note this. The action people take when they turn to God is not always prescribed by God, but actually comes out of a heart of thankfulness. And it's part of their idea of turning to God in joy and in faith. God didn't tell them do this. Out of their own heart, now in faith, they decide, I wanna do this to you as part of my turning and returning. Isaiah 55, come, 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Like this is the invitation of our God. <laughs> oh, it's so simple. When Jesus says, come and eat of the bread of life, come and drink from the living water, come and enjoy. Come and look upon me. Like all the different images in John, where he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world. I'm essentially what the bronze serpent in the wilderness foreshadowed. Look upon me to be saved. He's inviting us, okay? There's an invitation to come, but there's a response to the invitation. Now in John's gospel, coming is synonymous with believing, okay? Same thing here, except the way they express their belief and turn to God is gonna be, have a physical dimension to it, okay? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Which requires a listening ear, right? Hear. That your soul may live. Now I believe the soul is in Hebrew nefesh. Could be wrong. And I probably am. <laughs> I'm used to it. Your soul may live. I would... I will at least say in the New Testament, to come and believe is to give life to the soul. So is this a foreshadowing of that with a physical reality for Israel currently? I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, commander for the peoples. You shall call a nation that you don't know, and a nation you didn't know shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. Whoa. Now watch, to run, uh, to listen, to come, is looking like this. Seek the Lord. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. He's not developing a list of things to do. He's simply saying the same thing in a bunch of different ways so no one misses it. Come, seek, call upon him while he is near. Whoa, hold on, watch. What is intrinsic within seeking God, what is assumed within calling upon him, is the wicked are called to forsake his way. And you go, yes, his self-righteous way, where he depends on himself to be righteous in the sight of God, where he depends on his works and his efforts to get into the kingdom. Forsake self-righteousness and call upon the Lord. Amen. For sure. I agree. Forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion, and to our God he will abundantly pardon. This is the forgiveness and the kindness we saw in Hebrews, the once for all forgiveness. Now here's another kind of turning that has a physical dimension to it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping with mourning. Does that mean anytime someone wants to repent or turn to God, these things are required? No. But God is calling a specific audience in a moment of time, right, to do something that he calls returning. He's qualifying what it means to return to him. God is the one who prescribes this, not me. I don't write the script. So when Joel is giving this prophecy, speaking on behalf of God, the descript if you were to go, God, what does it mean to return 
for these people in this specific time with all their heart? Well, he'd say fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Right? A lot of the times they would rip garments to show incredible sorrow, frustration, remorse, mourning, incredible shock. They would rip it. And it became almost this, this habitual practice that their heart was disconnected from. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. So returning to, which, is, which assumes they've wandered. Doesn't that assume they've left and they're in danger? So they need to return to the place of safety, their refuge. So Joel calls Judah and Jerusalem to return to the Lord. Weeping, fasting, and mourning in this context demonstrates the heart level returning with, with all the heart. 2 Chronicles 30, 1 through 9. If you hear my kids yelling in the background, be grateful they're not at your house. 2 Chronicles 30, 1 through 9. Hezekiah invites the people of Israel to do something physical, which is a demonstration of an inward, invisible, spiritual reality of turning. Okay? Uh, the king and his princes uh, had taken counsel to keep the Passover. They couldn't keep it at that time because the priest had not consecrated themselves. So here's the plan that seemed right to the king and the assembly. They would delay Passover so they could celebrate it when there was time to do it. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, which is simply to say all corners of the nation of Israel, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord. Well, he's just describing what they should come and do the God of Israel, for they had not kept it up to this point. This would be a fantastically big deal. This would be like America deciding, you know what? In our school systems, on this day, in every classroom, in every school, every teacher has to participate. We're going to spend some time praying. We're going to seek the Lord and open the scriptures. We're going to make it a, a, a halt. That, that would be like us turning back in that capacity. They're deciding to keep the Passover, which was the crux of their redemption from Israel. The biggest reminder of God's faithfulness was at this point the Passover. And so couriers went throughout all Israel as the king commanded. Watch what, he, watch what they say. O people of Israel, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Come and keep the Passover. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who've escaped from the hands of the kings of Assyria, Right, So there are, there's a remnant of people who kind of escaped the sword, escaped the hand of, of the king of Assyria. And that remnant has an invitation from God. Come and turn to me. How do we return to you? Come and keep the Passover. What will happen if we do? God will turn again to you. Which assumes what? His face is turned away from them for judgment. But he wants to extend compassion and mercy. Which would essentially be triggered by them responding to his invitation. There's a physical action they would take. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, so that he made them a desolation. Don't be stiff-necked. Yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary. Serve the Lord. These are all descriptions of what it looks like for them to return to the Lord. Yes, there's a physical dimension to it, but it is always in demonstration of an inward spiritual reality that cannot be seen. We're returning to God with our hearts. Okay, here's the action God has prescribed for you to take to really return. 
and his fierce anger may turn away from you. What's the implication? God is currently angry. There's judgment. His face is against them for, for not, not good. <laughs> not good. But there's an invitation within that. Hopefully this judgment turns you to me. How do we turn to you? Come and do this physically. Come to the sanctuary. If you return to the Lord, you'll find compassion. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return. This sounds a lot like what the New Testament will call uh, salvific repentance. Because remember, changing the mind isn't always moral or salvific in nature. I can change my mind about, these, about this food. I can change my mind. So to change the mind as it, relates, as it relates to salvation sounds a lot like this. God will be merciful. God will withhold the judgment and put that off. God will be compassionate to you. God will turn his face to you. Your job is to return. This sounds like repentance. Now, I'm not saying these things are prescribed and required for us to truly repent. I'm giving you a picture of what Old Testament turning repentance looks like. Watch. Okay. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 9. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 9. Turning to God here is synonymous with keeping his commandments, at least for the people that are being called. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you. It's judgment. That's exile. That's Adam and Eve being removed from the garden. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, well, I'll gather you for, for goodness to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. There's a physical action for the people to take, right? In order to effectively do what God calls returning to him. He lists out the conditions for the people to return to him. Now, Acts 3.19, let me show you something. We already referenced this earlier. Um, I believe quite a bit ago. But here we see Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, change your mind, and turn back. That's implied within repentance. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So repenting and turning, essentially, are the same thing. So when we, the reason I bring up the Old Testament instances of physical action is because I guess in this way, I agree with the dispensationalist that within different dispensations, there's a prescribed way God has sovereignly determined for someone to indeed repent. There's an action they should take in different seasons with different audience. In the new covenant, the act of faith, the act of repentance, doesn't mean I do the things I saw in the Old Testament. The question becomes, is there anything to do? And I don't believe there's necessarily anything to do, but I'm gonna show you what the New Testament actually says about repenting and the actual circumstance of it happening. Acts 20, um, 
Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Um, I think this is right here. Uh, Serving the Lord with all humility with you. You yourselves know how I lived among you. I like getting the context so we don't pull verses out of context. Uh, he's essentially, I think he's with the Ephesian elders. Yep, he's called the elders of the church here from, from Ephesus. And he goes, you guys know how I serve the Lord with humility and tears and all the stuff the Jews tried to do to me. I didn't shrink from you. I did what was profitable. I taught in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews. So here's what he's teaching. Here's the profitable teaching God commissioned him to engage in. I testified to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. There's just another thing that validates the idea, another scripture that validates the idea of repenting being, by definition, not the Greek word metanoia, but the biblical concept of repentance as it relates to salvation. That's the best way I can explain it. So many people restrict, they're like, hey, when it comes to repentance as it relates to salvation, I'm only going to see that through the lens of the word metanoia. And it's always just a change of mind, bro, contextually. And when you look at the surrounding activity, there's a difference, it seems, between the word, the Greek word repent, and the actual biblical concept of repentance as it relates to salvation. Now, metanoia plays a role in that, but is not the fullness of it. So repenting to God in faith, the same thing, is what he describes as what he's teaching. Now, this is where we get into the fun stuff. This has been boring up to this point. The question becomes, does turning to God assume turning from sin? I'll say that again because we asked this earlier. Remember I said we'd put a pin in it? Well, I'm pulling it out now. Does turning to God in faith, in repentance, right? Does that mean I'm turning from sin? And if it does, what does that mean? Some would say, no, 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 no. Repentance, faith, turning to God does not require turning from sin. That's an extra action you're adding and you're perverting the gospel and making it about what you can do and you're adding to the work of Christ and you're adding to faith. Pause. Let's just recap. Almost all repentance, in the, in the, in the old, old Testament specifically, I didn't list these out, but here let me list them real fast. Repentance, a lot of times, involved prayer, sackcloth, ashes, mourning, weeping. I'm not saying we have to do that. I'm just saying King Ahab in 1 Kings 21, Daniel 9, Daniel for the nation, Joel 1 in Lamentations 2.10, the people of Israel, Isaiah 19.1-2, King Hezekiah, Jonah 3.6-10, the people of Nineveh, which I think we should go to, Nehemiah 9.1-3, Israelites returning from exile. There's always an outward demonstration of inward repentance for those occurrences of coming back to God, which I've already shown you quite a few, quite a few. I'm sure you could find, I didn't even think about this until now, I didn't think to find occurrences of people returning or turning to God without any outward action. I didn't think to look for that. So I might need to come back to this later. But for now, look at what happens with Nineveh. Now this is, wouldn't you say, physical salvation at least from the judgment God intended to bring upon Nineveh, but he sends Jonah 
as a gracious gift to hopefully bring them out of that. The word reached the king of Nineveh. What word? Well, this is so interesting, man. I'm always fascinated by what Jonah preached, or at least what's recorded about what he preached. My guy does not want Nineveh to come to the Lord. He wants fire to come down. Like, he wants a barbecue. He really does. In fact, even after they supposedly repent in his mind, they're like, no way. He's like, no, they're not repenting. He sits at the outside of the city and waits and watches and like, let's get this fire going. Come on. And he waits. Jonah has a desire. He doesn't really want Nineveh to, to really turn. How do we know that? Look at what he preaches. Jonah went into the city and he called out, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message? Now, you can give uh, Jonah the benefit of the doubt and say, well, what we don't have recorded possibly is what else he said. Well, I will say scripture is sufficient to tell us enough of what Jonah said for us to glean from. And all Jonah said, imagine going into a city. And the, the Assyrians were pretty naughty people. And VeggieTales, they got fish and they're slapping people. Like they're pretty wicked the way they would torture and murder. And, and Jonah has this... Uh, I wouldn't say racism, but the strong, uh, I would say even frustration with and hatred of them because of what they've done to his people. And this is what he preaches. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. That's it. Now, in verse 2, it says, uh, God says, go and tell them the message I tell you. So that might just be the message God gave to Jonah. But look at, the, the point is, look at how basic of a message it is and how the people respond. The people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed the God who sent Jonah and declared a message through Jonah. How do you know they believed him? Well, they called for a fast. And even after seeing that, Jonah's not convinced. They put on sackcloth, which a lot of times sackcloth and ashes and calling for a fast is a way to turn back to God from whatever it is he's calling you out of or whatever judgment you're trying to avoid. From the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne. Like this is, this is the king of a very wicked nation that knows how to torture people and enjoys it, seems like. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. Why? Why not just say, Jonah, you know what, we're sorry. He issued a, proclam he issued a proclamation. I'm just trying to show you what it looks like for Nineveh to believe for Nineveh to repent and change their mind and turn to the God of Israel. And he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast nor, nor, nor flock nor herd taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. He's calling them to do this. Let everyone turn from his evil way. And you go, that's self-righteous deeds from the violence 
that is in his hands. What, what does that mean? To turn from the evil way, from the violence. And now, these are not, this is not self-righteousness. I guess inherent within that, you're admitting, I can't do anything, so God forgive me. And this stuff is bad. I don't want... That's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. So now God is the one turning in response to what? The Ninevites that turned. How do we know they turned? Well, scripture could have just left it at they turned. And, and we'd take scripture at its word and go, yeah, they turned. But what's interesting is it goes on to list what they did to show like they really did turn or believe. He literally makes a decree, a proclamation. Turn from your evil way, the violence in your hands. And God may, like this is the interesting thing. This is not even God will. This is Jonah was sent by the God of Israel to say he's bringing judgment on us. Guys, this is not good. I believe this message. We need to call for a fast. Put on sackcloth. Everyone sit in ashes. Don't do no eating, no, not, none of that. Sit and call out to God. And while you're at it, part of the calling out, part of the believing or, or, or repentance situation is turn from your evil way. And the violence in your hands. God might turn. God might. Sheesh. You and I have a will. Like our, the new covenant is God will. Nineveh had a might. Sheesh. Turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did. We're not getting to fruit yet. And by the way, that's going to have to be two separate episodes on its own. We're not going to get to fruit yet. But for Nineveh and the repentance they experienced, the faith, the change of mind, the turning to God, God does see to their heart for sure. God does see the faith and repentance that is invisibly inward. But note what is recorded in Jonah, God sees what they did. And you go, well, yeah, they believed. Well, hold on. They turned from their evil way. That's the doing that he notes and responds to. And God said, like God did say, I will judge you, but he didn't do it. What's interesting about this is we have a people changing their mind and we have a God changing what he intended to do because they changed in relationship with him. So it goes like this. This is the whole conversation of, does God change his mind? He said, I'm not a man that I should lie or change my mind. It's that you are under judgment if you are, let's say you're, you're tweaked like this toward God. Currently, you're under judgment. On the other side is salvation and righteousness. If you turn to him and believe, you're not positioned under his not judgment. You're positioned for forgiveness, righteousness, salvation. So you changed in proximity to him, right? God will either release judgment on the wicked or salvation on those who believe. And guess what? You can be wicked and stay in unbelief or you can come and become righteous through faith. But I just want you to note, as we prepare for talking about fruit tomorrow, Lord willing, and the next day, know this, that I'm going to bring Nineveh up again. 
and I'm not going to use it as a proof text or one definitive example of what repentance always looks like. But I want you to see that there is repentance, change of mind, faith, that is demonstrated that God takes note of. And he responds to what they did. They turned from evil. Now, there are other examples of God actually commanding sackcloth and ashes and mourning. We don't see that with King Ahab or Daniel or the people of Israel or Hezekiah or, or Nineveh or the Israelites coming out of exile. But we are going to see this a couple times. Before we get to that, I got to go pee. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to PO Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okay. Rachel, good to see you. Her comment. I, I got to address this real quick. Just to let you know, I'm going to address it in further detail in the next two episodes on fruit. But her question, I say this in love, but this is a huge problem and makes people not only look to themselves for proof of salvation, but look to the law. This is the issue of the debate. No one can give me a direct answer to how I can know I've made it to saving faith. I can't wait to answer that tomorrow because I have a way I'm going to answer that. Because believe me, I've heard that a lot, a lot, a lot. God commands sackcloth, ashes, mourning, Isaiah 22, 12, Isaiah 32, 11, um, Jeremiah 4, 8, Jeremiah 6, 26, all right? Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, and in Acts 2, 38, and in Acts 26, 20, and in Mark 1, 4 through 5, and in Luke 3, verse 3, um, baptism is the way that people demonstrate outwardly, physically, 
their change of mind seems to be laced within their turning to God is the action they take. And these actions above aren't necessarily uh, to truly repent. I want to say that. You can have the above, you can mourn, you can have sackcloth, you can have ashes, you can jump in water, right? And none of that uh, guarantees uh, that you, because I, I can be, uh, let's see, I can be, uh, let's see, uh, <laughs> let's get real dark. I can be a Satanist and jump in a pool of water and I'm not getting baptized unto the Lord. Um, and I can say, have people say the same thing as they're putting me underwater as like a joke and I can make fun of God. I can, I can mourn and have ashes poured on my head and I can sit in sackcloth. Like you can do those things. So if you can do those things and not have repentance, then it necessitates that those things are not required to demonstrate true repentance and vice versa. They get into the whole conversation of like, oh no, are you saying water baptism doesn't, isn't required for salvation? That's exactly what I'm saying. I've done a whole long series on water baptism's role <laughs> in the life of the believer. Okay, but I'm just trying to show you that there seems to always, um, that I've found, there seems to always be uh, an outward expression of faith repentance that seems to be witness to what's taken place in the heart. Now, is repentance, this is the fun part, thank you Lord for this one, is repentance always, is it biblically turning from sin? Is repentance biblically turning from sin to God. We've already established for sure all, all repentance that relates to salvation, all, all the times repentance occurs as it relates to salvation, it involves turning to God, right? It's a change of mind about Jesus. It's turning from dead works. The question is, is biblical repentance relating to salvation? Is it turning from sin? Is that assumed within the change of mind? Here's what free grace individuals, the extremists, I'm not going to categorize everyone under this umbrella term, right? But the extremists uh, I've come across love to use this one, okay? The phrase repent from your sins is never found in scripture, not even once. And I would say I absolutely agree, except that's not entirely true. The way you frame it up, it is true, but there's nuance to this. The word for repentance, the Greek word and the Hebrew word we've already addressed, doesn't involve a turning away from sin. If you just limit the biblical concept of repentance to just the action in the Greek or the Hebrew, you misunderstand what's happening. Because remember, I already said this, there's a theology a biblical understanding of what repentance as it relates to salvation actually is. And the Hebrew or Greek word for repent doesn't fully capture the theology of what repentance is in one single word. So correct. The Greek word for repent, metanoia, change of mind, and the Hebrew word uh, nakam, right? The regret, the remorse that gets translated repent in our English, for sure. You won't see that word specifically used of turning away from sin in order to be righteous or, sal or have salvation. But the concept of biblical repentance always involves right, turning to God, which does absolutely 
Like there's no way around this and I'm gonna show you a scripture. It does absolutely mean and imply that to turn to him, you're turning from something. And again, free grace and lordship both agree you're turning from dead works. I am going to make it this little section, my effort, my goal is to show you that's not the only thing that is being turned from in repentance. I'm not going to bring Nineveh into this because that's going to be more relevant to the fruit section. Hebrews 6.1, let's not lay a foundation of repentance. Remember? The foundational, I, I stirred my tea and didn't drink it. <laughs> what a doof. Okay, not laying again a foundation. So repentance is foundational, right? From dead works and of faith toward God. So foundational doctrine, repentance, turning at least, I wouldn't say limited to, but at least turning from dead works, self-righteousness, my moral efforts, and I'm turning to God in faith. We can agree on that. If you go to Hebrews 9, 14, I already showed you this, but our conscience, our conscience is purified from dead works, from dead works, in order to serve the living God. I'll say it like this, it's really hard to serve God when your conscience is plagued all the time with shame and condemnation and I don't measure up and what about my past and how I know I've truly believed and how, how good am I performing to God. That plagues your conscience and cripples people from effectively enjoying service to God. And some of you can relate to that. You can relate to that. Let me show you in Revelation chapter 9, and then Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel 18, Acts 26, Matthew 3, Revelation 2, Luke 3, Jeremiah 34, 2 Corinthians 7, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 8, Psalm 34, Zechariah 1, jo Jonah 3, and Luke 11, that yes, biblical, the theology of repentance is indeed turning from sin. <gasps> yeah. It's not a meritorious, that's the problem is we, we get, how do you know you've turned from sin? It's literally what believing and repenting is. Let me show you why, okay? And we'll make sense of this because I know the questions are already spinning in your head. How much do I have to turn from? What does it mean to turn from? How far do I need to turn from it? Wow, what's the indication that I have effectively, <laughs> I think we overcomplicate things way too much. Some of you are overly analytical. And so when I share these concepts, your brain goes a million miles an hour and you're trying to figure out every angle through which you can definitively know I've turned from sin. That's why this can get so frustrating. For me, for me, not people, but how the flesh and the world and the culture can just get involved over thinkers. Revelation 9, 20 through 21. Pay very close attention. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues didn't repent of the works of their hands. Now, of course, going on here is some crazy judgment stuff. Okay, how much of this was uh, fulfilled in AD 70? What has yet to happen? Not the question for today. The point is there's a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right? Those who have faith, those who don't. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent 
When God brings judgment and consequences, it is for the sake of turning them to Him. There's a purpose. God doesn't just release the consequences of sin to be like, ha, sucks to be you, huh? <laughs> Try being God. He releases consequences so that that effectively turns you to Him. That's what chastening and discipline are. And for the unbeliever, it's being outside of the covering of God in the wilderness, experiencing consequence after consequence. Going, I need to go there. It's like Egypt looking at the signs and wonders and going, Israel's pretty protected. I want to follow their God. It's supposed to turn you to Him. And yet these people didn't repent, change their mind about the works of their hands. Now, specifically, they're choosing not to change their mind about the works of their hands, nor did they give up. Here's an action, okay? This is not self-righteousness. It's not they didn't give up self-righteousness. It's not they didn't give up their hypocritical works. It's not they didn't give up trying to be morally good. It's they didn't give up worshiping demons. I don't think any of you guys are worshiping demons to try and get into heaven. We were like, I think God really wants me to worship some demons. And if I do just do that enough, I can get to his presence. This is the antithesis of serving. This is opposite. Worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which can't see or hear or walk. I love that subtle jab at the false gods. Nor did they repent of their murders. What is it that, in this context, the wicked are needing to do that God is intending for them to do and desiring for them to do that they're not? It's not turning from self-righteousness in this context. It's not turning from me trying to be a morally good person. It's they didn't change their mind about or give up. If you want to get very particular, the language that's used, give up, stop murdering sorceries, sexual immoralities, thefts, worshiping demons, and idols. These are the works of their hands they're choosing not to repent of that is causing all the plagues to come upon them in the first place. And there's no repentance. No repentance. Interesting. Just so you know, the game is just, be, it's just getting started. Let's go Old Testament real quick. Ezekiel 14, I'm going to jump between old and new just to give you a very balanced biblical view. That yes, repentance, even if not explicitly stated, because biblical authors don't always have to explicitly state what is understood in Hebrew thought and Greek understanding. They don't have to explicitly say, repentance, turn from thy sins, because the concept of biblical, the theology of repentance does involve that. That's by Believe me, for those of you that are like, this guy's wonkers off the wall, I've heard the rebuttals, the reasoning, the logic behind why repenting from, turning from sin is not inherent to faith. I've heard it. In fact, I'm not just not convinced of their position, I'm more convinced of what I see in scripture. Frankly, you need to know, like, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't care if, if I have to turn from sin that's part of faith, whatever that is defined as, I'm, I'll just do what God says. And if he says I don't have to, I'm going to do it. There's, so I, I'm, I'm just trying to show, show you, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not defending lordship or free grace. I'm not attacking either one. I'm saying, what does scripture say? Ezekiel 14 says, say this to the house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. Repent. 
Turn from your idols. Well, their idols are what they're looking to, to be saved and to be right instead of God alone. So the idols can be the work of their hands, their self-righteousness, their own labors to keep themselves in the kingdom or to get into the kingdom. Bro, it literally just says, repent, which we've already talked about, assumes turning, implies and requires turning, same thing, but it's from idolatry. Well, yeah, you can't believe in God and believe in other idols at the same time. You can't look to God for righteousness and be worshiping idols at the same time. To be honest, that's not what some extreme free grace individuals think. That's why I'm hitting this so hard. Because there is the concept that is you can repent, turn to God, and have your arms full of false gods, worshiping Satan in the process, murdering, doing the most heinous things, and they go, that will never happen. We don't have a case study. That's not happening. Don't live in hypotheticals. But you're saying, if it did, that's fine. And yet God, within repentance for the house of Israel, he tells them, turn from your idols. What does that mean? Doesn't that mean stop committing idolatry? Baal, the gods of Egypt, the gods of the Canaanites, the Asherim. Does that mean stop? Turn away your face from your abominations? Any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, yet comes to a prophet to consult me? Like these, these Israelites are coming to the prophets, arms full of idols going, can you tell us what the Lord says? Because Baal, Asherim, the gods of the Canaanites, God, they're not talking today. So we're hoping the Lord will talk to us. You must be out of your mind. The Lord will answer him. He says, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. Ezekiel 18. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. So yes, you're either judged according to your sin or you're rewarded, essentially, for the righteousness of Jesus being bestowed upon you. And that is the greatest reward, but you know what I mean. Christians aren't punished. Believers aren't punished. We're rewarded. There's no condemnation or shame. Unbelievers their sins come upon their own heads. Now watch, lest you think he simply means turning from self-righteousness as the idol. Repent and turn from hmm, all your transgressions. Well, how do I know? I need to list out all and be consciously aware of all the sins I've committed and I gotta consult Phoebe because I don't even know if I lied to her yesterday. See how we overcomplicate things? Repent, turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away. What is implied for the people here? What is implied within repenting and turning? Of course, to God, but from their transgressions. It's casting away the transgressions they've committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, the rebuttal might be, well, 
they can't make a new heart for themselves, a new spirit, they need to rely on God for that. So therefore, they can't effectively turn from transgressions and, and cast away transgressions. And yet God is telling them to do something they're not able to do. What kind of God would that be? Hey guys, do this. <clears throat> they can't do it, Gabriel. They're so dumb. No, he's going to call you to do something that he's enabled you to do. Turn from sin. You know, when sin is crouching at the door for Cain, this is where people misunderstand free will. When it says sin is crouching at the door, and God tells Cain, you must have mastery over it. You must have mastery over it. You think God's toying with Cain, being like, sin's going to demolish you, buddy? No, Cain legitimately has an option not to give in to the murderous intent of his heart. He chooses to give into it instead of turning from it. Now, of course, within turning from sin, you're turning to God for something sin can't give. Neither can your righteous deeds, your own self-righteousness give you, which is true righteousness and holiness. God gives that. Let me go to Acts, 16, Acts 26, okay? This is, this is fun, man. This is, it, it's, you go, there's so many people who spend their whole life not, thinking through these things and frankly I like being challenged on my views and going you know what maybe I should change my view or you know what I'm actually more solidified I like being challenged and knowing that where I'm standing is biblical you gotta understand I wasn't like uh when I heard the free grace come come against some some of my beliefs I wasn't like I must defend what I think I was like I want to hear what they have to say so if I'm wrong I can change my mind this is not <laughs> you understand I'm not trying to defend anything. I'm just saying, what does scripture say? Not what camp, not what theologian, not what biblical teacher you really honor and changed your life and brought. What does scripture say? Now, I'm gonna bring you back to Acts 26. And I told you we would kind of put a plug here and we'd pull it out. Well, now it's time to unplug the bathtub and let the water flow out. Paul recounts the fact that Jesus comes and says, I'm appointing you and sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Turn from darkness. The darkness of self-righteousness and hypocrisy, brah. The darkness of your own delusion that you can meet the standard of God and get into the kingdom by your own efforts, brah. Turn from darkness to the light, which is going to be God being the light, and the darkness being the power of Satan. I think that's helpful, right? Let's just explain it like that. These are synonymous ideas, if not at least very closely related. God is light. So to turn to God is to turn to the light of the gospel. To turn from darkness is to turn from the power of Satan, okay? That they may receive forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. And me, faith sanctifies, but faith is if you define it according to Acts 26, it's turning to God from darkness, which is the power of Satan. Now let's look at what people say about this. Jesus talks about in Luke 22, verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the hour or the power of darkness, uh, when the th chief priests and officers of the temple come out to get him. He goes, this is the hour of darkness. Okay, I don't think that's something you want to be a part of. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, 
uh, we're told, or the Corinthians are told, to deliver the man who is sleeping with his father's wife to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Where's the darkness in that? I guess to Satan for that power. So either way, let me take you to Matthew chapter 3. I just want to show you that there is something to turn from. And you might say, well, the kingdom of darkness, by leaving your self-righteousness behind and coming into the kingdom of light, that's you turning from the power of Satan. It is time. Matthew 3.8. Does John call people to repent? Yes. John the Baptist. Are they getting baptized in the river, confessing their sins? Yes. In anticipation of the Messiah. Different dispensation, you might say. Agreed. Agreed. The point of what he says in verse 8 still stands. He addresses the Pharisees and self-righteous religious leaders who come out namely to make a show, make a spectacle of themselves, but also to kind of figure out what John the Baptist is so they can kind of make appropriate decisions. John calls them out and he goes, you brood of vipers. This is not like a nice, that's not what you call your mom on Mother's Day, by the way. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Is there appropriate and even validating fruit that will be produced in keeping with repentance? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, if you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 8, same exact thing. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I'm just trying to whet your appetite for the fruit episodes that are coming after this. And I'm, I'm, give, I'm showing my hand a little early, okay? And I'm letting you know that I am of the belief so far, and I have not been swayed any other direction, that true repentance is something that will have validating fruit that is born from it. Now, I did not say you will or you shall or thou wilt. I said repentance will produce some kind of validating fruit that is born out of it that is consistent with true repentance. And you go, you are eisegeting those texts, my guy. When we get to fruit and give me time, we'll talk through this. Remember where you've fallen is what we see in Revelation 2.5. Jesus is addressing the church in Ephesus. Remember, some people make this metaphorical, some people make this seasonal, some people make this an era of churches in human history. I think it's a literal church in a literal location who is literally in danger. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Now hold on. I'm not saying to repent, I must do anything. Do, 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 do. That's that's like the trigger word for a lot of free grace individuals is the do, the action, the work. So I'm trying to avoid that, okay? But I will say for them to repent in this context is to do something they stopped doing. 
If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, that doesn't mean you aren't saved. You're under condemnation. You're go but there is a danger that they're heading towards if they don't repent, which is really the focus of why I bring up this passage, because Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8 make it very clear repentance. There's fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a fruit that is born out of or consistent with genuine repentance. And I think this is touching on that same idea. The repenting here is something that will be, I guess, effectively not actualized, but validated through something that is uh, born out of it. Something they do. And then they'll be granted to eat from the tree of life. Now, that's nowhere near the main scriptures I have to support repentance or, or, or the whole fruit idea, just so you know. <laughs> If you think, wow, that's, that's a house of cards argument, it's not even one of my arguments. That's just extra. Jeremiah 34, verse 14 through 18. At the end of seven years, each of you must free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and serve six years. Okay, so uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Um, this is what the Lord says. I made a covenant with your fathers, and I told them every seven years... Set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and served you six years. You must set him free. Okay, that's what God commanded the people of Israel. But your fathers did not listen to me, okay, or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes. Is the repenting, the change of mind, the turning to God, the doing what is right in his eyes? I wouldn't say that's wrong, but it's incomplete. Because specifically, the right they did in his eyes was the proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. You made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So that was the good they did, which was, you know, a part of the repentance, the doing what is right in God's eyes. But then they turned around and profaned his name again. You each took back his male and female slaves. <laughs> Liberty! Don't go too far. You stay right here, servant, whom you set free according to their desires. And then you brought them into subjection to be your slaves? Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. In other words, here's what they did. The repenting that went on here, and we'll talk about there being a kind of false repentance. The repenting that takes place here was just a saying we'll do what's right in your eyes, not actually doing it. Uh, we'll proclaim liberty. We'll make a covenant before you in your house. But then you don't follow through. And Jesus tells a parable like this. He does. He talks about how uh, there's one son that like, the father comes to him and the dad's like, hey buddy, can you go and do this? He's like, sure. He doesn't do it. And then there's another son and he goes, hey, will you do this? He goes, no. And then he ends up doing it anyway. Then he goes, who did the father's will? And they're like, the guy who said he wouldn't, but then he did. Not the guy who said he did, but he didn't. That's what's happening here. You have people saying, yeah, we'll do that. It's a confession, a mere confession of we will do what is consistent with a repentant heart. But they don't. And so, oof. God says, I'll make you a horror to all the kingdoms. A horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Now, I have heard some free grace teachers address this 
in depth. I'm trying to recall the big points they hit on because I don't have that in my notes. So, I will say this. Oh, yes. This, 2 Corinthians 7, which is often used to note like a repentance that leads to salvation, okay, versus a repentance that produces death. Um, from what I, what my memory recalls, the free grace teacher will say, hey, the repentance here is not something an unbeliever does, but since he's addressing believers who are carnal in the Corinthian church, this repentance that they engage in is not salvific in nature, but just a change of mind about what is happening in their church. Being, you know, the man who's sleeping with his father's wife, and then they kick him out, and then they need to change their mind to let him in. So let's just read in context. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. There's a lot of regretting, grieving, sorrow going on here, so I'm going to take note of it for you, just so you don't lose track of what's happening. Even though I did regret it, it's like, did you, you regretted it, but you didn't? <laughs> I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, right? So there's a temporary, seasonal grieving that his letter caused them. It's pretty rough on them, because they're carnal believers. Some people think the Corinthians are not believers at all. I don't see that. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. I'm not happy that I made you mourn, but because you were grieved into repenting. There's our word, metanoia, change of mind. Is this repenting unto salvation? Let's keep reading. You felt a godly grief hmm. so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, mm -hmm. produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Oh, so clearly they're unbelievers. Ah, let's keep reading. Without regret. The salvation could be physical. It could be from something that's happening. Consequences, punishment. Not punishment or condemnation, but like consequences for not taking action and allowing sin to continue. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Death. So one is repentance that is produced from a godly kind of grief that actually leads to a salvation. The other one is a regret. Uh, think of Judas, throws the money at the religious leaders and goes, I've condemned innocent blood. What is that to us? You're right, I'm gonna go hang myself. He dies. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What zeal, what punishment. They, they actually punished the man who was engaging in such heinous sin. They removed him. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the manner, matter. So although I wrote to you, it wasn't for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we're comforted. So, I mean, you could make an objective statement about... Um, Uh, interesting. The kind of worldly grief that is here, or sorry, godly grief. I just didn't really think to say anything about this. But it, 2 Samuel chapter 12 is linked. Remember when David 
kind of killed his best friend, but I didn't touch him. And then he, because he slept with his friend's wife, and yes, uh, Uriah was one of his mighty men. Remember that? Well, David doesn't think anything of it, or at least he doesn't think he got caught. Prophet Nathan comes, exposes him, and then David says in verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Nevertheless, your child will. So there's death involved. But the godly grief uh, he experienced was because he was exposed into changing his mind about what he did. And so I, I am not of the, I'm not confident to say that this is making a statement about salvation as it relates to our standing with God. What the salvation is right here, I, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I only brought it up because it's typically brought up. Um, Paul knows they change their minds by their actions toward the sinner. Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 5, um, obviously from the last letter, <laughs> some things have changed. So there's a godly grief in, that has produced repentance. They've changed their mind about the situation at hand, and they took action. That's what I'm, I th think that's what's being said. There's an earnestness that is linked to the repentance Right? There's something they did, but it started with a godly grief or a kind of um, good awareness that something is wrong. And then it produced a change of mind in the action, earnestness of uh, what it produced. And you might say, maybe the earnestness is what's produced in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, Revelation 2. The fruit that's in keeping with repentance can relate to the earnestness that is connected to the repentance here. But either way, there's an eagerness. I want to highlight that. It was produced. An eagerness to clear self and prove selves. So, Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. Back to the turning away from sin concept. That was like a micro pause. Jeremiah 4 says, If you return, O Israel, from what? You'll see. To me, you should return. We know what they're turning to and what they're being called to. Are they being called from anything? If you remove your detestable things from my presence and don't waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground, which is like, this is too metaphorical. Sow not among thorns, too figurative, parable of the sower. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. That's another way of saying, return to me in what way and how by removing the detestable things they currently worship in idols. Now you go, that's self-righteousness. Hold on. I don't think he's telling them, hey, turn from you thinking you're good on your own. For sure, I think that is laced within turning from the evil deeds he's going to speak of here. But I don't think it's limited to that. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah, Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So there are evil deeds they're committing that have to do with the detestable things and God's saying, return to me, which is again, laced within repentance to return to God, to change mind, but it's turning from what? The evil deeds they're committing. Okay, Jeremiah 8, 4 through 9. You're going to see Israel is called to turn away and relent of evil, which is to turn to God in faith. In other words, it involves the admission of sin and turning from their current course of evil. 
Not just the self-righteous deeds they're trusting in, but the evil they are doing. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I've paid attention and listened, but they've not spoken rightly. No man relents of his, his evil. The deceit they're holding on to. The backsliding. What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course of evil, of deceit, of backsliding, which is opposite to God's course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Uh, even the storks know the times, the turtle dove, but my people don't know the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? In other words, they're trusting in the fact that they have Torah. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Do you know why? They've rejected the word of the Lord. This is their course. It's rooted in rebellion and unbelief. And it's choosing not to relent from, return from, turn from evil to the living God. So in this context... To turn to God is to turn from what? The perpetual backsliding and deceit and evil they're committing. And especially the unbelief of their heart. Now I'm going to take you to Zechariah 1. I'm going to finish this off strong with Psalm 34. And give my best evidence with Psalm at the end. Zechariah 1, 4-6, it says, Return from your evil ways. From your evil deeds. Does that sound like sin? Now you might say, well, all our deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. I wouldn't say that when I do a good thing, it's evil. Does that make sense? So, for example, just, just to clarify terms. For those that are like, all the time he says evil, he's meaning your self-righteous good works. Hold on. When I do something good for someone, let's say I'm an unbeliever. I don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the gospel, I live how I want, but I do good things for people. Like my mom, uh, her car breaks down and I drive over there, I fill her car with gas, I pay for the whole thing, I say, don't, don't worry about paying me back. I also want to take you to, to lunch and just let you know that I love you, you know? That's a good thing. That's not evil in the sight of the Lord. That's just not something good that merits me anything or keeps, gets me a spot in heaven or helps me reach the standard of perfection. So in that sense, it's as filthy rags in terms of this doesn't merit you anything, but it is a good thing. So there's a difference between good things and evil things, right? You can do a good thing that you find self-righteousness in, right? And that's the, those are the dead works we're told to turn from. But there are also evil deeds, evil ways, we're called to turn from to the living God, right? So if you go down, it says they repented. And they said, as the Lord lives, uh, a purpose to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, he has dealt with us. So they do return. They do end up repenting, which God defines or qualifies as turning from evil, doing the evil things. Not doing the good things you trust in for self-righteousness. That is also included, but the evil as well.
Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to bring up the Ninevites for the fruit section. I don't think it's worth going back to. I already showed you that they turn from. In fact, I'm going to underline that so I remember to throw that in there. Uh, Luke 11.32. I'm trying to remember why I brought this one up. Ah, yes. Essentially, Jesus uses the men of Nineveh as an example of believers who stand uh, in judgment against the unrighteous generation of Israelites who are condemned. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you guys aren't. You guys are under condemnation and judgment because you're rejecting the greater Jonah being Jesus. Now, Psalm 34, 8 through 22. This is all to say yes. I, I don't know how you can get around the fact that the theology of repentance relating to salvation is turning from sin, evil, not just dead works. So let me ask you this. For those that are like, well, how do you know you've really turned from sin? Okay, I would ask you the same thing about the self-righteous works you used to trust in because the free grace individual will look at me and go, how do you know you've turned from sin enough? How do you know you've turned far enough? How do you know you've turned from enough sin? How do you know you've fully turned? I'm going to present the same question to you. How do you know you've turned from self-righteous works to trust in the living God? It works both ways. Because you're saying, yes, we must turn from self-righteousness to Jesus. How do you know you've done that? How far can you, do you need to go to truly abandon self-righteousness and look at your good deeds as filthy rags and trust in Jesus? Can there be moments throughout your life where you accidentally or, or unknowingly or un subconsciously trust in what you're doing? Can, can there be moments like that? How far does that go? You see how the question works both ways? So they're asking us for a measurement, or at least my position, you're asking for a measurement, a standard of, well, how much is really turning from sin? Okay, how much is really turning from your self-righteous deeds? It works both ways. Psalm 34. You just got to think logically about these things. Uh, <laughs> you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. Because, uh, yeah. Just looking at the comments. Real Don't look at the comments. Bad. Okay, Psalm 34. The psalmist is inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So you can taste. You can taste and go, mm, Yeah, he's good. Do you see he's good? Do you take refuge in him? Oh, fear the Lord. He's about to say a bunch of different things that are all different ways of saying the same thing. Take refuge in him. I don't know how. Fear the Lord. Fear him. You have no lack. The young lions who suffer want and hunger, they would suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, so taking refuge involves fearing and seeking. You're like, oh, those are meritorious works. You're adding to salvation, my friend, and you're making faith not enough. <laughs> I just say, this is faith, man. You're, you're choosing to turn to him. You're seeking him. <laughs> oh, man. Come on, children. Listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear. I laugh because we can so overcomplicate such simple concepts and add dimensions of like our own complications that it's like, why? <laughs> just fear the Lord. That's what it means to turn to him. 
You're believing in him, aren't you? What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Now, when we get to Psalm 34, 14, typically, or at least I would assume, I'm going to do my best to get into the extremist free grace view here. And they'll say, well, this is talking about someone who's already trusted in God. This is talking about sanctification. You've become righteous, now turn from evil and do good and pursue that. Hold on. He's making a distinction, as with most of the Psalms, a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. They're not righteous because they've done enough stuff to become righteous. They're not righteous because they do enough good to validate their own righteousness and prove it's really there. Same with the wicked. The wicked aren't wicked because of the stuff they do. Wicked. They're wicked because of unbelief, which means they're covered in the filth of the evil they do. In other words, it's mainly unbelief, which is why they're under the judgment for their own evil. So the, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked all throughout the Psalms. Turn away from evil, do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Is he talking to someone who's already trusted in God? Or is he telling someone how to turn to God? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Okay? His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Boo. So these are not Christians or believers who do evil and God's face is against them. Because someone might insert into this, they go, well, the face of the Lord is against his children in a disciplinary way. He wants to do good for them, but he's giving them the consequence of their actions and he's given them some discipline and training that they could have avoided. Hold on. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil in what way? To cut off the memory of them from the earth. I think whether you're, if you're a believer, point blank period, there will be the memory of you in the earth because you're going to be resurrected and glorified with Christ. In other words, what God, your name will continue. I just believe that God preserves the, the name of his people. Um, but this person, it's gone. It's usually used of the wicked who don't trust in God. God cuts off their memory, the memory of them. So this is not a believer who just simply uh, left the earth a little too early because they did a little too much evil and God disciplined them into death. This is the righteous versus those who do evil. The righteous turn from evil and do good. Not to be righteous, right? But that's part of what it means as someone who is righteous, follows God, turn from evil. Turn from evil, okay? And you go, well, don't confuse sanctification with salvation. Right? Don't confuse uh, uh, discipleship with salvation. Oh, trust me, I'm not. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, delivers them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Skip down to verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now to take refuge is again to fear the Lord, to seek the Lord, to turn to the Lord. And turning to the Lord, I believe, um, involves turning from evil. And the doing good seems to be what Matthew 3.8, Luke 3.8, Revelation 2.5 speak as the fruit that's born out of repentance. Not the fruit that's produced by our efforts and straining, the fruit that's produced not against our free will, but that's why we have a new nature and a new spirit and a new heart and a new self and a new life and a new identity. 
so that the do good is not the way to be righteous. Uh, I would even venture to say that there's, there's a crossroads here, okay? So what you need to understand is the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. No matter what, this is describing the righteous person, not the wicked person. So we can say, yeah, a wicked person doesn't do this. Righteous person does. Does a righteous person do this as part of repentance? Or is this part of sanctification? I would say the initial repenting is, from what we've seen in Scripture, turning from evil. And the continual, like throughout my life, I don't know, and there's no human measurement on this. Stop putting a number. How, how, how often? How much? How, how much is much? Turning from evil is not just involved in repentance and turning from sin, but throughout the life, there is the daily call on the believer to what? Confess sin, repent. Not to be forgiven, but for the sake of intimacy and proximity and closeness with, with, with God in your life. So I'm just trying to show you, show you that the evil, their memory's cut off. This is not someone, the face of the Lord is against them. But his face is not against those who do good and turn from evil. This is literally describing not just the eternal destiny, but also the life of one who is righteous and one who is wicked. The wicked does evil. They don't turn from evil. They don't do good. They're not righteous. They don't repent. The righteous, they do. There are a few more things I want to, there are some extra things to say about repentance. Some extra things. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. I don't think I need to read these. Like you can just go read these on your own because this is not necessarily, I would say, required for the arguments put forth, but this is just extra add-on. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, repentance actually leads to a knowledge of the truth by which someone can escape the snare of the devil. In other words, it's when it's in the context of turning to God for salvation, it does, it's what we've been talking about. The once for all repentance, forgiveness of all sin, turning to God, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, uh, correcting his opponents, God may perhaps grant them repentance, not Calvinistically, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will, it's interesting that the snare of the devil is not just being locked under the penalty and the punishment for sin, but also the effective doing of sin, which is the will of the enemy. Acts 17.30, repentance is actually commanded by God. It's the work of God we see in John 6. This is the work of God that you believe the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to repent. And I think we can say, so far, it is always turning to God in faith from not just dead works of self-righteousness, but evil deeds of sin. Acts 2.38, Peter says, because they go, what do we do? We want, we want this, what do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is where people... Take water baptism to become something it's not supposed to be. In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter calls people to repent, which will result in being filled with the Spirit. In other words, when you believe or repent or turn to God, all those different ways of saying the same thing, you are filled with His Spirit. Verse Kings 8, 46-48 if they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy, I believe this is um, 
Solomon is erected the temple. And he's saying, Lord, hear my prayer. If they sin against you, by the way, there's no one who doesn't sin, and you're angry so that they're carried away in exile, if they turn their heart and repent and they plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we've sinned and act, we've acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pay, pray to you toward their land which you've given to their fathers, the city you've chosen, the house that I built for your name, here in heaven, the prayers. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions they've committed. Grant them compassion for they're your people. But what's the repenting? It's the turning with their heart, with all their heart. Is there a repenting with all the heart? In other words, when God calls someone to repent and believe, does he ask you to do it with all your heart or is it sufficient to do it with only a part of your heart? How do I know I've done it with all my heart? How do I know I've only done it with half my heart? Do you see how confusing we can get this? This is just the language of you are really repenting. You've believed. The whole human measurements and how far and how much just frustrates me so much because it overcomplicates and muddies the water of what is already so crystal clear. Repent with all your heart. Turn to God. I, I don't know if they're well. I guess that's what the next section is about. Is there a kind of fake repentance? And uh, I'll show you some things to at least consider, okay? Uh, in Luke 13 and in Psalm 7:12, God's judgment and condemnation comes upon those who don't repent. I'm going to kind of speed through this because this isn't like necessarily like life-changing. Jeremiah 5:3, uh, people refuse to repent like it's their choice. It's a free will decision. Psalm 78, 34 through 35, repentance is seeking God earnestly, turning to Him. Mark 1:15, repenting and believing um, are said to be, you know. Two sides of the same coin. Uh, Acts 11.18 and Acts 13.24, repentance is granted, meaning repentance is made possible by God. It's a gift that God gives through His Son, the opportunity and the possibility for Jews and Gentiles to turn to Him. That's an opportunity. It's a gift. Romans 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9, uh, repentance is stimulated or encouraged by the kindness of God. And his patience and grace towards us motivates repentance. So repentance isn't so much stimulated by this fear of hell and judgment. It's the kindness of God stirs me up to turn to him and want more. It doesn't mean there's no element of I'm trying to escape the judgment. It means that's not the primary concern. It's, it's more about I want to be with you because you're so kind and gracious and you've shown yourself to be wonderful. I want to be with you. Hebrews 12:17 is interesting. I will at least pull this up, okay? As we end this two and a half message on freaking repentance. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 17. Esau, he's call, uh, the author of Hebrews is calling the people to look at the example Esau set and say, hey, don't be like him. Uh, don't be sexually immoral or unholy. He sold his birthright for a single meal. What a knucklehead. And Esau's like, for you know, afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. So there's a desiring on the part of Esau, if you read the, the narrative, after Jacob takes the birthright, 
Um, it takes the blessing. And then Esau goes in and goes, hey dad, I'm here with the meal. Worked really hard to get you the meal you love. Where's my blessing? He goes, I, I just blessed you. Jacob! And so then he goes off and he wants to kill his brother. But Esau desires to inherit the blessing again after he already rejected it. Birthright. He was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau is an example of one who lost his chance to change his mind and to reverse what had happened. He couldn't inherit the blessing because he missed his chance. This is a call to people who have not repented, turned to God in faith, I believe also, not just from dead works, but also from sin, to turn to God uh, in order to inherit the kingdom. And once you miss your chance, if you die in unbelief, you're like Esau. So, uh, just some things to consider, okay? I'm not saying that we can build an, an entire theology around this, but it is there. Jeremiah 3.9, the question becomes, can there be a fake lip service uh, kind of, what's the word? A repentance that is not real? I don't know, I can't think of the terminology, but right here, just read Jeremiah 3. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Spiritual adultery, bowing down to idols. Uh, her treacherous sister Judah didn't fear. So this is Judah being addressed here. Yet for all this, Judah, her treacherous sister, being Israel, Judah didn't return to me with her whole heart. So Judah's called return, return, turn from what you're doing, look to God. Change your mind, if you want to use the Greek. But she didn't return to me with her whole heart. Instead, look at how she did return to me. In pretense. In pretense. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. This is not Judah's like, save, but like, not really sorry. This is Judah is still under, considered treacherous. Uh under judgment, under wrath, under condemnation. Like, this is not a group of people who, like, repented and, and then they're, like, halfway. This is people who, like, in pretense, returned to God. Now, what that means, uh, I guess we could explore in detail later. Uh, but go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return! <laughs> Israel, you're so faithless. I won't look on you in anger. I'm merciful. I won't be angry forever. Just acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord, that you've not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children. And I'll take you. I'll bring you to Zion. So God is intending to respond. He's inviting. That's the nature of repentance. Is God is inviting us to change our mind, to come to him, to believe, right? to turn to him from what? Not just dead works, but sin. So there's an acknowledgement of guilt within the returning to God. I think all biblical repentance has an admission, at least as it relates to salvation. Don't soundbite that and go, he's an idiot. All biblical repentance relating to salvation has an acknowledging of sin and guilt. Isaiah 29, 13 and Matthew 15, 8 speak of how they, uh, they honor me with their lips, which could be related to this uh, returning to him in pretense, like not really with their whole heart, like this half-hearted, 
I believe that's a thing. I haven't quite put my finger on it, but I do believe it's a thing. Um, this people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me, right? But they sound like they're close. And then Matthew 15, 8, Jesus will quote this. Now, here's an interesting example. I think another example, and then we'll close, um, of this. Just something to think about. I'm not saying this definitively means there is a kind of half-hearted fake repentance. It's just something to consider. It's Jeremiah 3, Isaiah 29. And you're like, that's not relating to salvation, but it is relating to a false confession. Um, 1 Samuel 15, 25 through 30. King Saul is sorrowful for what he did. Only when Samuel presses him enough about it. So we have King Saul do something wrong. I forget what it is. Let's pull it up. Um, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But before this, Saul, uh, you got to go back for context. The Lord sent you on a mission, King Saul. Devote to destruction the Amalekites, the sinners. We'll get to that when we get to James 2. And fight against them until they're consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of God? Saul said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Is there an admission of guilt? Does he sound like he admits he did anything wrong? Or is he defending himself? He's defending himself. I've gone on the mission the Lord sent me. I brought Agag. I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Just the people, the sheep, the spoil, the oxen, the best. Uh, we brought to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel said, man, does the Lord have delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As much as in just doing what he says, obeying his voice? Obedience or to obey is better than sacrifice. Better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Notice what he's about to say, which will really trigger Saul to say sorry, at least. You've rejected the word of the Lord, so he's rejected you from being king. I think it's quite telling that after this statement, in other words, he's threatening King Saul, Saul uh, Samuel is. Not even a threat, it's like, this is gonna happen. God's rejected you. And Saul goes, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So you knew you sinned prior to this and you just tried to cover it up and, and make it look good or, or you didn't know you sinned and now you're really convinced because you're afraid you've, you've lost the throne. Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And you go, look, he's really, he's, he's repenting. He's turning to God. He's admitting sin, right? Samuel said, I won't return with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord. God has rejected you. Samuel turned to go away and Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to someone better, David. God will not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I've sinned. Now watch. Here's why I think this is kind of what we see in Jeremiah 3. The returning in pretense. Yet... Honor me before the elders of my people and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. In other words, it does happen. But look at what he's concerned with, his reputation, his image, his appearance. 
because God rejected him from being king. Saul doesn't seem to be, now the text doesn't explicitly state this, but Saul doesn't seem to have what I would qualify as biblical repentance. Being sorry is not repenting. Can I say that again? Being sorry is not repenting. I'll say it again in a different way. Admitting sin is not repenting. You can admit I have sin and try and cover it up with your good deeds and try and be a good enough person to make up for that sin. You can feel sorry like Judas. He felt sorry over sin, but he went and killed himself, didn't try and go to Jesus to fix things and seek you know, forgiveness. The same thing happens with King Saul in 1 Samuel 26. He's chasing David, trying to kill him. David corners him, could have killed him, didn't. And then it happens again. He's sleeping, King Saul's on the ground, surrounded by his army. David sneaks up, takes his spear and I, I believe his water jug, and goes, hey, Abner, you're supposed to be guarding Saul. And then Saul admits, oh, you know what, I've sinned. He admits sin, and he says, I'm sorry. But in the next chapter, he actually intends to keep pursuing David. So just some things to consider that I don't necessarily have answers for quite yet. Okay. Being sorry is not repentance. Admitting sin is not repentance. Okay? But those two elements seem to be uh, at least a part of true repentance. Meaning, repentance is turning to God in faith for what? Righteousness, salvation, forgiveness. Which seems to assume, as all the scriptures we've looked at, seems to assume turning from not just dead works of righteousness that I used to find hope in, but evil as well. And it seems to be sorrow. I don't think there's any way around that. How do you know you've been sorry enough? How do you know you've really trusted in, in Jesus alone? And all these different questions. How do you know you felt sorry enough for your sin? How much godly sorrow is needed to measure true repentance? I do believe there is a repentance in pretense according to Jeremiah 3. Not a full-hearted, because God says, return to me with all your heart. And actually, it's the call in Acts. Turn to God with all your heart. Um, in faith. Judas, sorry, not repentant. King Saul, sorry, not repentant. Keeps doing him. The question becomes, um, is it... Is it repentance if you intend to keep doing it? I'll say that again. Is it repentance if there is the intent to keep doing whatever it is that you're admitting to God is wrong? Because again, laced within repentance on lordship and in free grace, there is, hey, to turn to God is to admit sin. But is it true repentance if there is the intention to keep doing it? And I, I'm not sure I have the answer for that yet. To be honest, I'm going to be real with you. I, I'm not sure I have the answer for that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what angle to tackle that at. But we can at least say, so far again, that this is biblical repentance. Some would say, yeah, if you intend to keep doing it, you're not repenting. Free grace, I'm sure, would find a way around that. I don't know how. 
So I need to go and listen to more on that. But as far as I can tell, man, like number one, repentance is a one, uh, repentance unto salvation, a one-time event, okay? Changing your mind in the Greek. In the Hebrew, um, uh, being sorry, uh, breathing strongly, uh, having pity, um, sorrow or regret, but it's never, I'll say it like this, I don't believe it's either or, or one on their own. It's both. It's a change of mind, it's a regret of, and a turning to from dead works and evil. You don't need to ask the question, how do I know I've done that? How do I measure the f if I've done it enough? If the free grace individual can say, hey, I know I've come to believe, then you can know you've come to repent because it's the same thing. So, more on that when we get to the episodes on fruit. Let me know in the chat if this was helpful to you. Like, honestly. Because if it wasn't, it's done. <laughs> not going to go back and not do it. But I'd love to see how and in what way this was helpful. All right? Uh, as we close, for those of you that don't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. And uh, you can visit our website, abovereproachministry.com, to find all of the free resources we have. Free Bible study courses, free devotional studies, free Bible study worksheets. Um, my book is not free, but it's Fruitful. That's the title of the book. It's called Fruitful. The abundant, uh, the essential keys to living the most satisfying, fruitful life this side of heaven. Um, you can listen to our podcast. So all these sermons I do on YouTube end up in podcasts. But we also have a second podcast. I'll say that again. We have a second podcast. It's called Above Reproach Church Podcast. Okay, And Above Reproach Church Podcast tackles church issues uh, from not just the perspective of church leadership, but as church goers. As people who are part of the church, how do we navigate these? What do we do about them? How should we think about them? You can also get some church merch, represent Jesus on your body, or give to the ministry. Uh, you make I mean, this whole thing is crowdfunded by God through his people, but I have a wife and two kids to care for and support, um, and this is the way I do it. This is the way God funds and cares for us and tends to our needs. So if you want to help us teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves, if you want to help us move people towards Jesus as best as we can, um, you can give and send a check uh, made out to my name, Jason Camacho, um, not made out to Above Approach Ministry because I'm still figuring out 501c3 garbage. <laughs> Make it out to my name and then P.O. Box 338 Green Cove Springs. You can donate right here. Debit and credit card uh, right here on the website. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. We have pretty much every way you can give. On Patreon, you can give on a monthly basis and get really cool perks. And then you can buy some church merch. And that all goes back into the, free, the, the creation of all this content. Um, all this is completely free to everyone around the world, and so you make this possible, so thank you. And don't forget to check out today, actually, the third episode of our Above Approach Church podcast airs. Uh, it's actually out now, and so go check it out. It is officially released, the second conversation on the whole Andy Stanley scandal going on, and um, I think that'll be a blessing. Every Tuesday we release an episode, unless something happens. So, alright guys. Thanks for watching. You guys keep moving towards Jesus. And I hope I didn't misrepresent anyone or attack anyone or even defend anything unknowing. And just looking at the scriptures, man, it's very, very clear to me. 
and I hope it becomes clear to you and not as complicated, okay? Love you guys.